We are always really pleased to have Ms. Sarah Varney join us. Sarah Varney covers health for KQED's The California Report and Health Dialogues and reports regularly for NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. She's reported on a range of topics from stem cell research to gay marriage to ballpark food vendors. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Sarah Varney. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to introduce our guests for this evening. We have John Capitman. He's the executive director for the Central Valley Health Policy Institute and the Nickerson Professor of Public Health at CSU Fresno. Uh, John has conducted extensive research on health inequities, long-term care, substance abuse, and racial and ethnic disparities in cancer care and outcomes. And he's really one of the gems of the Central Valley, he's somebody that people nationwide turn to when they want to understand the health of the Central Valley. So we're really pleased to have him here. Uh, we're also joined by Sarah Reyes. She is the California Endowments Program Manager for the Central Valley. She previously served as a California State Assembly member for the 31st Assembly District, and she was Executive Director of the Community Food Bank and worked as Chief of Staff to Assembly Member Juan Arambula. Am I saying his name right? Arambula. Okay, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm still trying to, I need to sign up for some, <laughs> some classes. Um, and Ed Palacio is the Regional Chief Executive Officer of the San Joaquin Valley Rehabilitation Hospital and Outpatient, Outpatient Centers. He's an alumnus of the California Healthcare Foundation Healthcare Leadership Fellowship, and he regularly lectures in the senior nursing course at CSU Fresno. So welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us this evening. I wanted to start, John Kaufman, with you. Um, you spent a lot of time analyzing data, uh, looking at how, uh, looking at asthma rates, obesity rates, poverty rates. Um, I wanted to see if you could take us back in time to when the Central Valley was at its healthiest. <laughs> um, 1650s, 1670s. <laughs> it was uh, a swamp, no. Before, before, before the Europeans came, probably. Uh, in modern time, though. In modern time. So if we look back to the 1970s, uh, the, the valley still did worse than California and the nation, but a little bit less worse. Uh, and there were dramatic racial ethnic inequalities in health, uh, but not quite as big as today. So I guess if we were going to pick a time to look back to, it would be the 70s. And, and, and in your mind, when did it start to take a turn for the worse? The 70s. So right at the end of the 70s. Okay. And Sarah Reyes, you obviously are a longtime resident of the Central Valley. Talk, if you can, about what John is saying. And, and, and in your mind, uh, sort of structurally and population-wise, what was going on in the Central Valley such that these um, gaps that already existed by the 70s really would start to worsen and would worsen for many, many decades to come. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Um, as John mentioned, the seven, or when you asked the question, you know, when we were the most healthiest, I think the, the rumblings among the audience were, were pretty interesting because people thought, really, have we ever been healthy? <laughs> and, and I think, um, you know, were we healthiest in the 70s or were we just looking at it in a different way? Mm. Um, and I think we've been looking at it a different way um, because we have always suffered the disparities we're suffering today probably in greater numbers now because there are more of us living here. So as the population grew, the disparities grew, but the disparities have always been here. And so I don't know if we've been healthiest in, in the grand scheme of, you know, healthy compared to what, but we have always been um, worse off than other parts of California, even in the 70s. And in your mind, what, was, what were the seeds of that? Why, why, the central, why has the Central Valley why was the Central Valley, even by the 70s, still worse off than other parts well, of the I think state? Well, I think a couple of things. I think it um, goes to poverty rates. 
Um, I think it goes to um, you know the community as a whole and and the the immigration of of those who came into the to the Central Valley. And I think it's also the environment of which we live in. Right, um, we live in a basin. So when you look at air quality and the number of asthma rates that we have and folks suffering from asthma, it shouldn't be a surprise, but it's something we should have been dealing with a lot, long time ago and been more aggressive at as we went through this path because I think we could have addressed it better. Um, and so I think it's a lot of different <coughs> contributing factors um, to what we face today and what we face then. And your time in the assembly, I wonder, can you talk a little bit about the, the voice that the Central Valley was given in the state legislature mm -hmm. and state policymaking to, to remedy some of those? Well, you know, actually, on my first day in the legislature as a swearing-in, I realized that the voice of the Central Valley um, didn't exist in the mm -hmm. legislature. And it's very simple, because when you get sworn in on the first day, they call members um, to stand up to be sworn in by county. And so they start with the A's and go all the way down through the alphabet. And as you, you know, they call Fresno County, two people stand up. Mm -hmm. Right, and they call you know if you're lucky one from Kern, um, and L.A. And, and the whole bus get the exactly, and then, get that out. was yeah. that was a rude awakening. L.A. and half the room stood up. Yeah. So in order for us to get a voice in the in the um, in the legislature and in in the state of California, you really have to be able to reach those powerful um, decision makers in L.A. who represent the L.A. area, but should also care about the state. And so I think that that's really important. And I think that those types of um, um, partnerships and those types of relationships have helped us. Um, and then I think in some ways it's hurt us um, in that respect because you know we, we always get less of and, and don't get as much of what we need in order to deal with these issues. And just to stick with you for another moment, Sarah, can you talk about how when you're trying to craft statewide health policy, um, the issues that, say, Los Angeles is dealing with obviously are quite different than what you're dealing with here in the Central Valley. Was it difficult to craft statewide health policy that would be equally beneficial here as it might be elsewhere? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, in Sacramento, it's a one-size-fits-all, right? But it really isn't a one-size-fits-all because of the varying populations. But I think that now we're starting to see folks that um, understand that there is the issue of, for example, of air quality, one of those is truck traffic. Mm -hmm. We in the Central Valley have a huge truck traffic going through the, the 99. Mm -hmm. But we also realize that in Oakland and in LA and Long Beach and the ports, they also suffer those same types of issues because of the truck traffic going through there. So you, we've, been, we've become smarter about it. We're now re you know, recognizing that there is a partnership that can be born right. from the Central Valley and the port cities in order to address this issue of the health effects of, of truck traffic. So and, I think that's important. And I wonder, John, um, can you talk a little bit about the role of data in, in mm -hmm. these arguments that you know, it used to be we were somewhat blind to the health around us. Now we have these very sensitive indicators. We have uh, population-based data. How important is, is the sort of the data to prove the case? To I give think the data is inc incredibly important. Um, the, um, all of the Valley counties and several of our large cities um, recently got selected to be part of something called the Community Transformation Grants, which is an effort that's part of the Affordable Care Act. This is the health reform the, law. The health reform, yeah. the Obama law. And that pumps new money into helping communities make 
choices around smoking and cardiovascular disease, food, eating, exercise, um, that make the healthy choice an easy choice. So that's, that's kind of national push in that, light, that regard to try to save money on healthcare costs. And so the Valley um, really got recognized federally as part of that. And we, we've been told that to some extent it's the availability of data to make our case, but, mm. but also the strength of community-based organizations. I mean, I, every time we talk about health issues in the Valley, I, I think it's important to talk about the, the range of interests and the range of experiences. So even the question, why is the Valley so sick? That's not the right question. The right question is, why are some places in the valley so sick? So as we look across the valley, people who live in Woodard Park or the equivalent high-end neighborhoods in Bakersfield or, or Stockton um, are doing as well or better than similar neighborhoods anywhere in the country. Uh, if we look at white men who are educated and insured, they have better health outcomes in the valley than just about any other group of white insured, educated men nationally. So our story is a story about inequalities. It's, that's the big story. The averages, we're just slightly worse than California on average. It's when you break down those averages mm -hmm. and you look at how subgroups of people, how immigrants are doing, how um, young, young men are doing, how um, elders of color in rural areas are doing. That's where you see the huge disparities. And that, that's, that's what brings down our average. Mm -hmm. And so the data not only helps us get the attention that we need, I think, at the state level and, and nationally, it also should help us be clearer about what it is that we're trying to fix. Uh, and, you know, and I, I, I think that that's, that's really the issue. And Ed, when, when, you, when you look at the data that John right. puts together, what are sort of the target spots that you see for well, the hospital system? Well, you know, over the course of time when we talk about coming from the 70s, it's interesting because our delivery of care, our medical delivery model, is really hasn't changed much yeah. since the 70s. So we're talking about these disparities, but we really don't have, from the provider side, a great organization of how to deal with these disparities. We kind of have gone with the traditional model. So John mentioned, you know, the white male who had insurance they very, know very well how to access health care. Mm -hmm. You know, it's their primary care physician. They have a primary care physician. They go to the hospital. They have a set of providers that they're familiar with. But for those who may not know how to navigate that system, we haven't done a very good job in bringing people into that system, managing their care, tracking their care, and then sending them back to an environment where they can maintain it on their own. And I think that's, that same model is still in place today that was there in the 70s, and we really haven't molded it to the challenges that we face. I mean, some people might be listening to that, though, and say, well, don't we just have county clinics that, and if you need health care, you just know to go to the county clinic. Well, you know, part of that, in what we're challenging different uh, mindsets is, you had mentioned going to the county clinic. Why do we make people go somewhere? Why isn't the county clinic out to the people or where they may need it or education about how to access it and when to access it? Those are some of the challenges that we actually have when we talk about now trying to manage a population to have an effect to make the entire population healthier. So we can, we can deliver care and deliver education to the people who access us, but how do we go out and, and educate others? 
Now, come 2014, when a lot of the provisions in the Health Care Act go into effect, should the Supreme Court uphold it, um, you're going to have a huge expansion of Medicaid in the mm -hmm. United States. So just for the folks uh, here in the audience and then the listeners on the radio, um, there's, I think, a lot of misunderstanding about who Medicaid covers. So I think there's a sense that if you're poor, you get coverage. But when, in fact, Medicare, you have to either be pregnant, you have to be taking care of small children, you have to be a child yourself, you have to be disabled. So just because you're poor doesn't mean you get Medicare. 2014, that changes, and it, it, it does simply become a test, a means test, um, so that if you're quite poor, regardless of whether you have children in the home, you'll, have, um, you'll be covered under the Medicaid program. Sir, can you talk about the implications of that expansion in Fresno? I mean, you know, I was down in Los Angeles recently, and we were talking about millions of people becoming insured under this Medicaid expansion down there. Who is this going to benefit Fresno and the Central Valley? Or obviously, you have a very large undocumented population here. Those folks will not be covered under this Medicaid expansion. So, talk if you can about the sort of impact of that, specifically of the Medicaid expansion. Right. I think it's a couple of things. I think that um, you know, Fresno. It's it's probably known to a lot of people, and I know a lot of people in the audience know this that Fresno opted out of becoming involved in the low income health program, which was, which you know, the supervisors, the county supervisors wanted to justify, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we don't, we're not prepared to have folks um, in line at the, at the gate ready when 2014 hits. So just, just so folks know, so this was the, this extraordinary grant that, or waiver rather, mm -hmm. that California received from the federal government. It's $10 billion over five years, and essentially allowed California counties to reorient their whole indigent care programs. So these are folks who don't qualify for Medicaid, don't qualify for any other program. Um, and so California counties are getting a lot of money to essentially reorient these programs and essentially sign people up who are going to be eligible for Medicaid expansion in 2014, and they're able to do that now. And Fresno actually is the only county in California for contractual reasons, for a lot of reasons, depends on who you talk to, um, <laughs> but is the only county in California that is not going ahead with that. So that's what she means by the low-income health program. Right. Yeah. And so I think part of that is, you know, at the end of the day, we still have to get folks covered. Mm -hmm. um, and we still have to get them prepared and educated around health care reform. Whatever happens with the Supreme Court, we still have that law on the books today and we have to get them prepared. And so here in Fresno, what does that mean? I mean, for Fresno, we still have a large population that is uninsured, um, young adult males, um, you know, single, single head of households with no children mm -hmm. who can't access it today. Um, so those folks are still in line to access it. But we also have a huge undocumented population um, which is not addressed under health care reform, which is not raised under um, the waivers, which is not raised in any of this issue. And so, in, you know, who is going to uh, take care of those folks? Who is going to address them? Are we still going to have a system where they go to the emergency room, which we all know is the most expensive, the most costly for folks to get their health care? And so I think that, you know, that's problematic. And how we go fourth on this issue is important for communities like ours, but we're not alone in that. In the Central Valley, there are many communities like that. And in addition to that, in California mm -hmm. and in the Western states, how do you deal with a population that is not going to be able to access health care at all? 
And, and Ed, how are you thinking about this as a provider? Well, certainly that Particularly creates, on, the, on, on the folks who are undocumented. Well, and, and Sarah mentioned the emergency room access is really what is the fail-safe, in many cases, many people's safety net. So there's a lot of discussion about creating medical homes where people have a basis and they have somebody that they see regularly that they can build that. But uh, you've got multiple layers of issues because certainly being debated are how immigrant status is viewed uh, what uh, eligibility will they have to benefits? Is deportation involved? I mean, there's a, a huge political controversy now going on in other states as well, sure. but certainly on a national front, it's a political issue. So now you have people who are scared to access some of those relationships because they feel that maybe family members would be deported or they would uh, lose family right. in the process and kind of get caught up in that. So it's, it's a significant issue because uh, emergency rooms are safety nets because of the, they know there's a federal law that hospitals must treat people who show up in the emergency room. So they know that beyond anything, that financial questions can't be asked, they know that they'll get treatment. So if we don't provide any other access to care in that sense, then we kind of get what we deserve from the hospital side in that where else are people going to go than the emergency room. And how is this ultimately going to affect the financing of the hospitals? So right now, hospitals get... It's this very convoluted <laughs> financing pretty, pretty method. Complicated. But, but they basically get, you know, sort of the more poor people you take care of and the more uninsured people you take care of, you get, set, uh, this is, you get more money basically from the federal government, right? The dish, the, these dish you payments. Can. So you can. Which, you which can. hospitals you, you could. would argue right, right, right. Yes. that is not enough. Right. But sort of, so, but the question I have is in 2014, when presumably far more people will be insured, the idea is that you're going to reduce those payments. The federal government is going to reduce right. those payments. Correct. So what happens to hospitals like here in Fresno where you're still going to have a very high That's percentage correct. of folks showing up and That's needing correct. services? Yeah. You know, How are you oh, going to finance that? The difficult part is they're not financing it. You know, in that sense. So hospitals still are vulnerable to that even when you talk about the disproportionate share monies, um, that like creates a cash flow issue for hospitals many times because they don't, those monies don't show up until kind of the end of the line at the end of a cost year or end of a budget year, but you're still putting the money out to care for mm -hmm. the patients that are there. And the more complex certainly the health issues are, the more costly the care can be. Um, so if people are often are only accessing healthcare through emergency, they're usually more medically complex patients. They haven't been on a medication regime. Uh, there's multiple uh, comorbid conditions that they've developed that aren't being treated as well. So there still is a huge financial impact on the hospitals. And the, there's certainly, uh, it's very, at least in the hospital business, common knowledge that more than half of the hospitals in the state of California operate in the red. Mm. So it kind of begins to be this money shifting where you may get some for disproportionate share at the end of the year, but you may operate most of your budget year um, losing money mm. to support all the care you give. Which a lot of people would argue is that's why you have to address the issue of undocumented, the issue of mixed Correct. households, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, undocumented usually live in a mixed household. Some are citizens, Correct. some are not. So, uh, you know, it, it begs the question of why are we not addressing this issue now so that we don't go down this road mm -hmm. um, where we've been for a very long time. Right. Yeah. I, 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 John. You know, just thinking about if the, tw if the Affordable Care Act gets implemented as planned, there'll be almost a million additional people in our eight counties who have insurance. That means that the health care providers that they use will get reimbursed for the care that those folks use. There'll be about 400,000 is the best guess, uh, unless something dramatic happens with immigration, 
who are uninsured, 90% of whom will be undocumented persons. So it's, that, that's, that sort of gives a sense of the numbers. Um, the loss of the dish payment in and of itself, I think, is not a huge problem because of the increasing numbers of people who will be insured. And that's, that's the logic, and I, and I think it, it, it more or less works. The issue of the large number of undocumented people, we're, we, we've really just got to take that on. We, mm -hmm. can't, yeah. we, we can't just hide about it. Um, and the, 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 I think the thing that you emphasize is just so important mm -hmm. is to understand that most undocumented persons live in mixed status mm -hmm. families. Sure. Sure. Healthcare choices are family choices. So even if the kids are eligible, if mom and dad aren't, it's going to be really hard to use services. Or if one kid is eligible but another is not, it's going to be very hard to use services. Well, I, I think so. there's an inherent question in that, too. When you mention a million people who are now insured, the big question is, can our infrastructure support a million more people accessing health care? I think that's an important part of addressing the health of the community itself is do we have enough resources um, you know that it, hopefully you know we begin to move people out of emergency rooms and that but do we have enough physicians who can manage uh, these yeah. particular patients if a million more people begin to access it and I think that's a significant concern for providers is above and beyond the implementation of the Health Care Reform Act but when this happens how are we going to have the infrastructure to be able to provide care too yeah. Let's let's come. We'll come back to that. I led you all down into health policy wonk land. I'm sorry. <laughs> we like to geek out on this stuff. So I, I want to kind of step back though and go. Uh, John just uh, released some new numbers today or yesterday. Um, on this what's called the Healthy 2010 objectives. These are basically sort of goals for all of us as Americans um, <laughs> to get fit and, and eat better. Um, so I wonder, just talk a little bit more specifically about what the healthy, um, the healthy 2010 objectives were and then how Central Valley did. Sure. And you didn't come up with these on your own, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I definitely didn't. So this is, this is an, actually an old story. It goes back to the 1990s. So in the 1990s, the, the federal government started a process of saying, how can we say if a community is healthy? What, w what would be the things that we'd want to see? And over 20, 30 years, there's been a lot of agreement and consensus. The Healthy People 2010 goals released in 2000 um, basically talked about population health. And they said if we're going to achieve population health, well, we need to have some indicators of, on one hand, a healthy environment, and on the other hand, indications that we're bringing everybody along, that we're not making some communities healthy at the expense of others. Um, the measures are pretty straightforward. They're things like what percentage of adults or what percentage of teens are smokers, what percentage of us are overweight or obese, um, do we breathe adequate air, um, do we have doctor's appointments when we need to. They're pretty straightforward measures. Um, on the 10 leading health indicators, it's a sad story for the Valley. Um, there are only a couple of those measures that we meet, where we meet the national standard. Uh, for almost all the measures, we're below California and below the, the nation. Um, and we've gotten no progress, or in fact, worse on a couple. A um, couple of bright spots, or the one brightest spot, I think, is adult physical activity. So we, uh, we do better than the nation, better than the, than, than the state. 
on that measure. We, we surpassed the, the federal goal. Um, and when you break that out, that's about people working hard. So um, low-income people mm -hmm. in the valley get a lot of exercise. Big surprise, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we, we meet that standard. Almost all the other standards, we look really bad. Um, and 40% uh, of adults in the valley are overweight or obese. The national standard is something like 15%. Mm. The national average is in the mid-20s. So th this is a really big challenge for us. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, you, you work with the California Endowment, um, which is a foundation based in Los Angeles that is funding this really interesting initiative. They're, they've gone into, what, 14 communities mm -hmm. um, around California that have um, poor health statistics, essentially, um, and are really trying to sort of re-engineer, I mean, from the ground up, kind of from community-based up, um, can re-engineer the environment, literally everything from are there sidewalks on the um, on the streets, are there places to bike? Where's the access to healthy food? Where are the parks? How do kids get there? Um, and, and here in the Valley, there are several of these sites, um, mm -hmm. and Sarah works on that. Talk, if you can, a little bit about, you were, when we were backstage, you were talking a little bit about this idea of, you know, if we build it, they will come. Um, and I think there's a lot of people in the health world who think, oh, you know, we've tried that, you know, we've tried to provide opportunities for people to get out and exercise. They'd rather, you know, watch American Idol. Um, <laughs> but talk about some of the, the, the initiatives that you all have done here and that John was mentioning uh, where people have think, shown up. I think one of them is, you know, we, we as a foundation have gone in and said, too many times folks go in and tell folks, tell people, you must exercise, right? You're lecturing at them, you're speaking at them, you're not working with them, and listening to their, their, the reasons why they don't do this. And so this initiative of building healthy communities is really about empowering residents and young people to take back their community, to change the environments that they live in, and to change the environments and prioritize them as they see it. Mm -hmm. um, and what we've seen is folks are, are standing up and taking that back. And I gave you an example of, you know, at the first of the year, people are always talking about, you know, losing weight and diets and living healthy. Um, and what we recognize is that a lot of people in poorer communities also are talking that way, but they can't afford to go buy new gym weights and, and a bike to go bike or whatever. Gym membership. Right? Gym yeah, membership, sure. whatever. Expensive. And so what we did is we empowered a, a local um, boxer, Jennifer Alcorn, who's a championship female boxer, to go into the communities and hold boot camps um, in in parks and public see parks. if, if yeah. public parks and on a Saturday morning uh -huh. and a Sunday morning to see if folks would come. And you know we're now five months into this. We did it for the first three months. She's still running these in two community parks in Southeast Fresno. She's still got a hundred people coming to them, and they're still you know being involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about the Zumba class. Yeah, so, and John, John's been Zumbaing. We, yeah, we're gonna get a John demonstration went later. We're, and and you know, observing. And <laughs> you didn't you didn't say you no, actually I, got up. And did. No, I didn't. But, I, but um, felt pretty, pretty you know confident. if if you if you provide the opportunity or the access, folks yeah. will access them. You know, if 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 people have a, an ability to to be physically active, to to have a good time, but to do it in a safe space to do it in appropriate where they know they're not going to get hurt and to learn something, they will come and they will be a part of it. And so I think what we're seeing is that we don't have those access points in a lot of communities in our, in our um, Central Valley. We don't have places for them to play. We don't have schools that are accessible and open after hours. We don't have sidewalks. We don't have things that are going to allow people to live a healthy life. 
Um, but when they have those opportunities, they will. And so what we're hoping through Building Healthy Communities and we're seeing is that um, young people and residents are taking those issues on and going against the hardest grains, but are winning those fights. Yeah. And Ed, can you talk a little bit about from the hospital side? Uh, so you you are the you are on the provider side, telling mm -hmm. those patients you need to lose weight. Correct, correct. How do you get them to connect with some? I mean, how do you even know what Sarah's doing or the Zumba classes? Or how how do providers, in a sense, need to reorient themselves toward not just telling patients these are the things you must do, but here's how you do it. Here's how, how you, you go it. and find and, it. And how to how to get it done and where the resources are. And, and knowing that their patients are poor, perhaps, and don't have you know can't pay the gym. Mm -hmm membership or, mm -hmm. or working for 15, 16 hours a day. Yeah, it's really important for providers to be connected to the community that they're in and find out what resources are there. And what's being discussed a lot, because now certainly we're all dealing with healthcare reform, but there's a lot of topics associated with it that are really bringing these issues to the forefront. So when we talk about case management and managing the health of the patients after they're discharged, um, you know, it, it may take financial incentives for us to kind of realize it sometimes, but a big important process for hospitals is to prevent readmissions. One of the ways is you can't simply just instruct somebody and say, oh, go do that. But now we have to really do an evaluation of what resources do they have access to? Where are they living? Are they transitory? You know, many people move for work or for other things. So we make assumptions and we have to challenge those assumptions that they're not have a, a doctor or a family doctor that they're going to go to, but what other resources are available in the communities in which they reside. So we're really kind of going beyond the hospital walls and really taking on, finding out what the community resources are and then trying to make those connections and make sure that people are there. I, I currently work in rehabilitation and it's kind of a, a great example that, you know, trying to find somebody a wheelchair when they're newly paralyzed um, and usually we stop there. But then be, we have to go beyond that now is that are they even anywhere that a wheelchair can roll? Mm -hmm. right? And even the basic question of that, is that the best equipment, is that the best resources for where they're going home to? Um, because we're, our part of our role then is how do we prevent them from coming right back into the healthcare system, back into the emergency room, back into the hospitals. And of course, one issue for a lot of people who are trying to lose weight is access to food, healthy food. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about this. You know, we've always made this assumption that there are these sort of food deserts that, um, and that that directly contributes to um, people not having great choices and, 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 and not being able to choose healthy food. There, though, there was a study recently, though, that came out sort of challenging this assumption um, that essentially said there that in, in places where these efforts had been made to sort of correct food deserts, I'm, am I getting this right? Mm -hmm. that, um, that they did not necessarily see an improvement in people's choices, food choices, mm -hmm. which kind of for some people spoke to this idea that you need to certainly do more than just provide the choices that, you know, now we're also, I mean, I love me a good burrito. I mean, and uh, if I ate a burrito every day, I would have a weight problem, you know? Um, but so I'm just I'm wondering to what extent, you know, you make all these community changes, but when you talk about behavioral changes, how you get people to sort of make behavioral changes as well. John, do you have a well, I, thought on that? I, I think there's a big tendency to, to engage in kind of either or thinking sure. about mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. um, when when we when I talk and I think when 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 mm -hmm. California Endowment speaks about policy and systems change. Some of the policies and systems we want to change are about how people get information right. mm -hmm. and about what's available to them to support. There's a wonderful program, this is just an example, a wonderful program done by Centro La Familia, uh, a, a Fresno-based group. They worked in a small town, Huron. 
They engaged young women, um, single moms, in just learning more about their community. Sounds like a straightforward thing. But you suddenly have people learning how to access healthcare. Where do I go? What does it mean to go? Oh, you mean somebody could possibly help me with that? Never even thought it was a problem I could have help right. with. Oh, you mean I could ask my neighbor for help about where to go for that? I never thought of that. So th there's a level of supporting people in making their first steps into working with our very elaborate, very off-putting systems on uh, developing the skills. Um, we've been doing work with the Hmong community um, where there's a, 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 a real problem of people not following through on prenatal care. And so we've, we've interviewed young Hmong families about that. And the overwhelming comment is that the care is culturally inconsiderate, insensitive, mm -hmm. um, downright insulting. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've been working with folks about is to say, okay, when you use Western health care, it may in fact be downright insulting. <laughs> expect to have that mm -hmm. kind of experience. And here's what else you can expect and why it's helpful. And here's what you can demand and why it's helpful. And that, that's, that's new information. Yeah, and I think the presumption, you know, John's right on. The presumption is if you build a grocery store, all of a sudden you've solved the food right. desert problem. Right. Well, you know, go into any grocery store. The first thing you walk in right. is what do you see? Chips, sodas, cupcakes. I mean, Trips. cupcakes. <laughs> I mean, you don't see fruits and vegetables. That's the first thing. And then when you go to, um, you know, look at the shelves, Everything's fat-free, this-free, that-free, and you're presuming that people, if you just pull uh, 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 something off the, the shelf and it says fat-free, that all of a sudden you've made the best choice. Mm -hmm. Well, chances are you didn't mm -hmm. because you didn't read the label. So it's hard for folks that are college-educated PhDs to know what the choice is. Sure. And so I think it's, you know, you've got to also not just build the access to healthy foods and fresh fruits and vegetables, but you've got to educate of how to make that decision and what is good mm -hmm. for you, what isn't. Mm -hmm. You know, everything in moderation. I think a doctor would tell you, everything in moderation. Right. But what does that mean? And, how and so what it? are so some of the specific things that the endowment's doing around well, that you know, in the Valley? Well, you know, for example, um, it's, it's storefront conversions. So it's looking at these mom and pop kind of, um, stores in these communities and saying, you know, let's talk about moving the chips to the back where you have the sodas and everything. And maybe the first thing you'd want to have coming in is, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. You don't need a big vegetable aisle, but you need maybe some access to that. And so we've done some store conversions in town in communities where you have to either drive, take a bus that'll take you an hour to get to a grocery store to work and, and get young people to go in and work with store owners to do these storefront conversions. So, so really looking at placement of things. And then having an access to a, a simple type of document, a little card that says, you know, geez, if I buy kale, I can make this great recipe right. out of True. it. I don't have to look at kale as a foreign, mm -hmm. you know, element. I can actually do that. So how do you do that? So those are the types of things we're doing. Um, you know, there's other programs. I Here in Fresno County at the um, EOC, the Economic Opportunities Commission that runs the WIC program, uh, the Women, Infant, and Children program, they're doing um, shopping 
tours mm -hmm. at grocery stores with mm -hmm. moms mm -hmm. and saying, let's go through and help you read the labels right. mm -hmm. with dietitians mm -hmm. that can say, okay, this is the best choice to make. Right. And in some cases, it's not the fat-free, sugar-free kind of thing. It's really something different. And how is it, I mean, how is it that, 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 that we have a generation of people who don't know those things? Oh, wow. come on. Wow. <laughs> we, we, we have a generation that has grown up as, a, as we all did on television, right? The, th this is not just, we're, we're, we're a symptom of a national problem, right? You know, yeah. the overweight and obesity problem, the food systems problems are national problems. We're, we're just a really bad case of something that's going on nationally. I think the other thing that maybe is unique here is we've done a really big job of selling that the American dream, the sort of what you came to work here for, involves bigger, faster, quicker, right? Mm -hmm. And mm, we've kind of really, in a lot of ways, lied about the American dream. If we look at the people who we think are the most successful in our country, you know, Mitt Romney and his family, sorry, aren't, aren't, aren't <laughs> overweight. You know, if you look at the 1%, they're not overweight. They sleep well, they eat positive food, they uh, tend to live in places with clean air. We haven't created a narrative that says that the American dream is about living well and that things that get in the way of living well are things you are deservedly angry about. And I, and I actually, you know, want to say that yeah. we're not going to bring up the Romneys, yeah. but I also want to say Sorry, obesity, obesity <laughs> is not a poor people's issue. Sure. That's true. Right? I mean, we don't have an obesity problem in the Central Valley or this country because there's a lot of poor people or there's a lot of undocumented. There's a lot of people who have means who are obese, mm -hmm. right? So or poor people aren't making, are the only ones making bad choices. Right. Poor people aren't the only ones breathing bad air. You know, it's estimated in Fresno Unified, one in two children are carrying inhalers at Fresno Unified because mm -hmm. they suffer some form of asthma. Mm -hmm. Those aren't just in the poor side of town. Right. Those are also right. in the better side of town, right? And so I think that we have to also remember that this issue of, you know, is it just because of poverty issues? Is it just because I'm undocumented? Is not the case. It's a bigger problem. The, it's exasperated in poor neighborhoods sure. right. because the big stores, the big grocery mm -hmm. stores, mm -hmm. you know, and I won't list them because then you'll have a whole other problem, don't <laughs> want to be in those poor neighborhoods because right. they're afraid of safety, they're afraid of crime, they're afraid of theft. Right. And, and so it exact right and profits. There it exasperates the problem because there is no access mm -hmm. to be able to cook a meal. And when you're only making eight dollars an hour and you have four kids and a husband who's working night and day at eight dollars an hour, you try and provide um, something that is healthy that can be cooked on a daily basis that could be healthy for your family, right. mm -hmm. or do you make the choice of, I can go to the pizza place and buy a $10 pizza? Sure, right. sure. Right. I guess I'm, I'm wondering, we started out this conversation talking about, you know, back in the 70s, uh, you know, a couple generations ago, and I'm wondering if, though, in this sort of reimagining of the community, in, this, in both the physical structure, the access to the mm -hmm. foods, the kind of uh, sort of re-education, if you will, of how to shop even, right, and how to put on a healthy meal, I mean, do you expect that 
are you hoping that, that these efforts will pay off, not just in this generation, but sort of for future generations, right? Mm -hmm. That we sort of right. relearn how to do these things. Well, I, I think we've got to make sure that we check our assumptions, because I think you're right. There's a time and place where we may have handed this off to the school systems, and people had home economics, and they learned how to chop, or what the difference yeah. between food groups were. So yeah. we've made a lot Which of I assumptions. Did very, I did very well. <laughs> <laughs> about how people accessed information. I think the challenge and the opportunity is to take advantage of what we know how we can access people and so when the gentleman asked everybody to make sure that they turn their cell phone off for example there was hardly anybody in the room who didn't bend over to check so that's a powerful medium in which we can tap into to do education and there's some different groups in california and across the nation that are really tapping into cellular phone use mm -hmm. uh, smartphone use where with diabetic patients where they can plug a food in while they're at the grocery store and get an immediate response of whether that's a good choice for them or not. That's when we begin to re-educate and tap into how people function today. And those, that's where we need to focus our efforts to and check our assumptions that people are learning this in any other format and really assume that they're not. And we need to be able to provide that and information. And I think you made a really good point early on. Our healthcare providing system is the healthcare providing system we had in the 70s. It's true. true. Right? Mm -hmm. But yet, we haven't changed technology, and, and we're still telling people, don't eat that. Right. Like your mom, don't yeah. do that. Yeah. It's yeah. the wrong yeah. thing. It worked well. And we've got the finger out, and we're pointing at people. <laughs> don't do that, you're bad. You know, if you're obese, you're bad. Don't eat that. And people don't respond that way. They may have responded that way way back right. when, but now, text them. <laughs> true. Very Put true. that Put burrito, that burrito down. down. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so ah, Facebook them. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Did you absolutely. go do your mile walk today? Yeah. Chances are they're going to respond. Absolutely. So we have to actually change. And I think that that's where the young people are really coming to their leadership and to their voice, at least in our work, mm -hmm. is that they understand that the world has changed right. and technology has right. evolved. And they're responding in that way to get their mm -hmm. issue and their, their mm -hmm. information out. Mm -hmm. And John, have you had a chance to evaluate any of these programs, kind of a text, texting programs or these sort of health programs that tee off of technology? No. No, not yet. <laughs> they're uh, so new. They're so new. The, the, the one that I've heard about that seems to have some real positive results has been in San Diego with, with um, recent moms uh, and providing, mm -hmm. providing mm -hmm. perinatal care. Uh, advice. Uh, you know, one of our barriers in the Valley is that we have lower text cell phone enrollment than mm -hmm. relative to the population compared to other places. I, 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 I think the, the cell phone and the technology changes are really important. Um, and I do think it's also about I'll just say something really old-fashioned, you know, <laughs> date me. It's also self-esteem stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, many young people in the Valley go to schools that are crumbling, have teachers that are over-worried, over-pushed, over uh, go to families that, are, that don't have the time. Um, and we don't have enough opportunities to tell people, you know, you're worth it. You deserve to have access to, to food. You deserve to have mm -hmm. a decent life. Uh, we've been working in Tulare County in a teen pregnancy prevention program. Um, and I, I got to say that the most striking thing for me about the experience has been the, the desperation that parents are expressing about mm. we don't even know how to make a connection with our kids mm. around these values now and, and what fits now. 
Um, and we don't see anybody helping us do that. Hmm. And then the kids are talking about a sense of enormous disconnect from their parents. And I, I, I want to learn the traditional values. I want to be part of the, the, the continuity and the, the, the things that are strong in my family. But I don't even know how. Or I don't feel like I deserve to know how. So I, that, that's sad stuff. But th I think that we can't slip into saying, oh, it's about the new technology or the new change in the health equipment yeah. or the, the new this or the new that. It's about getting a shift in our cultural conversation. And I, I, I suggest that it's a cultural conversation about equity, about fairness, mm -hmm. that, that needs to be the one that we have. Um, in the Valley, we do have places where people don't have the basic ingredients for a decent life. There isn't decent water, there isn't clean air, there isn't sewage, there aren't street lights, there aren't places to play, there aren't foods available, the mm -hmm. schools aren't what they should be, it's a, there aren't jobs available, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know, it seems to me if we really want to see some change in these basic measures of health, we need to set a goal that over the next 10 years, we're not going to have towns like that anymore. Mm -hmm. We're going to be a place where everybody does have the basic ingredients for a good life. Now, that still leaves a lot of room for individual choice. There are a lot of us who are, you know, reprobates and, you know, won't, won't, won't follow the good <laughs> advice. And, you know, I'm, I'm surely one of them. You know, I mean, th that's another matter. But we don't have... A level playing field. A right. level playing field, an equity and equality of opportunity for people. So if we could just have that conversation and keep having that conversation instead of the one of why don't you eat your beets. <laughs> right? That's not the conversation. The right. conversation is, well, how are we going to pull together as a community to create real fairness, real options? And it's why I'm doing this silly talk about the American dream. It is the American dream that we create opportunity for everybody. Mm -hmm. you know, so that, that, that's the discussion. Health is just a symptom of a larger process where we're allowing communities to fail. We're allowing whole groups, whole generations mm -hmm. to fail. And that, mm -hmm. that's, that's the conversation I think we have to have. Well, I think that's a nice place to, to stop. I have many, many more questions, but I, we want to make sure we get a chance to, to open it up to the audience. But what, do we, what has to happen to move the mass of everybody to get the idea that it's in their own self-interest across all groups, all, all income levels, uh, all ages, to, to you know, do the right thing. But I think there needs to be a collective education of the structures of the community itself so that we are fully aware and we can actually promote and support it so that it's not just one group doing one piece of work. So I, I think that's the challenge is how do we make sure everybody's aware of all of the work that's going on so that any chance that we have, any opportunity in working with a family or working with a physician or working with an organization, that we're aware of what those resources are and we can promote them and talk about them. Because then that's when the collective awareness will start to get bigger and bigger, that there's those avenues. But earlier in the discussion, you were talking about how all these people are going to be shifted to Medicaid coverage. And, but all I seem to read in the paper is about medical professionals, both doctors and dentists, who are trying to run away as fast as they can from Medicaid. And like these two things don't seem to be going together very well. And I was wondering if you could address that. Yeah. Ed, do you, you want to take that? <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, and you know, Medicaid is actually administered a little bit different in the state of California. Right. So we have the Medi-Cal program. And so traditionally what has happened is the state delivered compensating funds from the federal government to match what they're contributing. 
But uh, what happens is the state also takes an administrative fee out of that, their cost for running the program. So traditionally what's happened is that the rates of reimbursement have been significantly low. So from strictly an economic model looking at it, there's a lot of, of providers out there who feel they can't afford to take that patient population in a number which exceeds the number of patients who are paying for the care because of the deficit there. They'd be operating in the red. And you know, there's a, certainly a moral and ethical issue in all of that, but there's also providers who are trying to support their own families and meet their own financial goals and those kinds of things. So traditionally, it's been tough to find providers who are willing to treat that population because of the reimbursement issues. So that is certainly part of what I was talking about a little earlier, that if all of a sudden we have a million more people that are being covered by this and nothing addresses the rate or addresses the infrastructure to support those million people, where are they gonna go? They could still end up back in the emergency room if they don't find a provider who's gonna help them or help them navigate the system. Um, and so that's, it, it, without even talking about what the rates may be in the future, there's still that history that's associated with it where people have shied away from serving that population because of the financial issues. But maybe you the, could, only, the only thing I, yeah. I would add to that is that most people on Medi-Cal uh, in Fresno County and, and, and in fact throughout California, get their primary care through community health centers, That's what I was federally point, qualified yeah. community health centers. Those centers um, are, at least in our region, one of our greatest assets. We have mm -hmm. a wonderful series and system of those centers. They're, they're quite, quite available. That system is growing, will need to grow more, and will get helped through the Affordable Care Act sure. as it moves forward. There's also um, money in the Affordable Care Act that should stabilize rates a little bit to the state, at least for the first few years uh, after 2014. So there, there are a couple of things about that. Um, but it is true that with the specialists, there's still a real problem, mm -hmm. access, like accessing Certainly. specialists. That's true for all of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that yeah, not, not just true. Yeah, not just those on Medi-Cal. Yeah, mm -hmm. but especially if on Medi-Cal. I mean, right. for many people who exasperated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. say that it's, it's almost impossible. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, so John's point is that there are these community clinics that mm. are, ha you know, either get zero dollars or get one dollar. I'll take the one dollar, right. you know. <laughs> Medi-Cal clients that we have are being forced into managed care now. And unless I missed it, I don't think you've talked too much about the transition into managed care and how that's going to affect people. I'm not an expert on all of the programs, um, so let's start there. But I will say, you know, I'm not sure that it will get better in all the complication mm -hmm. of the programs, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if you're on Medi-Cal and you have a disability, you meet a certain criteria. If you have kids, you're, you're in a certain program, if, you know, on and on. So I'm, I'm not sure it gets better um, or it solves all the current problems that you just brought up. But what you know, the healthcare reform is, you know, to do and is, is working to do in California is to make sure that folks that are not accessing care, that have no ability at all to see a doctor, can now see a doctor. And so it's not about the current one you have. So it, it's not about I'm covered and I'm covered with XYZ program. I'm in Medi-Cal. And so I'm covered. And so under healthcare reform, my Medi-Cal is going to get better. Right. That's not what the health care reform is about. The health care reform bill is, I have no care. I'm not even accessing right. care because I'm not eligible for, I don't have any private care, and I'm not eligible for any government program. 
this will allow me to be able to access health insurance so that I can access healthcare. So I think that you know you're mixing apples and oranges there. Will it improve Medi-Cal? That's a whole other conversation, I think, that Sokolo could probably tackle <laughs> within yes. a Another ten part session. series. Yes, absolutely. Um, in that. Just one thing to add, though, that I would say, and I think John was sort of alluding to this, which is that it's certainly the case with private providers like Blue Cross or Shield that they are really narrowing their networks, right, to try right. and uh, bring down costs. Mm -hmm. So it's, I mean, I have Anthem Blue Cross. My network is much, much narrower now um, of the providers that I can see. So, you know, you can still go to, you know, use your Medicare card and go many places. You can use your Medicaid card and go many places, probably more places, I would say, um, than a lot of people who are in even preferred provider networks. That's true. Um, so it's kind of across all insurance types that, that this is happening, I would say. I'd like to specifically address the, the status of health care reform, uh, regardless of what the Supreme Court decides uh, later this year, California has made it clear, Secretary uh, Diana Dooley, who of course is from the Valley, has made it clear that California is moving forward on the path to reform. Uh, how do you see that moving forward if there is some uh, court ruling that, that in some way alters the uh, Affordable Care Act moving forward? I guess I'll first direct this to, to Dr. Kapitman, but uh, uh, well, how, how can California move ahead if there is some change uh, with the federal law? It to some extent it depends on what change we make to the federal law. So if just the individual mandate is thrown out, California still can move forward on expanding access for uninsured people and on uh, improving um, and expanding its Medi-Cal program. Mm -hmm. so, so some of the things that we're interested in. Uh, under the Affordable Care Act, a state could propose a totally different model and move forward with it. Yeah. That, that's always open to us. Um, so there's a lot of moving forward that we can do. Now, if the whole law is thrown out, that's a, a much harder thing. Um, suddenly we have many more people uninsured than we do today. Uh, real problems with the financing of Medicaid. You know, just a whole long cascade of new challenges. So mm -hmm. it, it to some extent um, depends, but if the majority of the, ACE, of the Affordable Care Act is preserved, uh, we can still have a discussion in California about how to develop mm -hmm. a, a universal access system. And I think the central, one of the central pillars is this, we haven't talked about the, the health benefit exchange, but this is the place mm -hmm. where you would go to purchase a health insurance product that has essentially been vetted, um, and you would be comparing apples to apples, whether right. you're going to buy a Blue Shield product or Anthem Blue Cross or even a county health plan, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but depending on your income, you'll qualify for a federal subsidy. And I think for many health policy folks, they would say that if those federal subsidies are not available because the federal health law gets thrown out, that the exchange will have a very, very difficult time mm -hmm. moving forward. And I think it's also important to recognize that um, California was working on a reform of health care in this state long before, before. Mm -hmm. the ACA was even thought of mm -hmm. at the federal level. Right. And so whatever happens and in the Supreme Court, you know, the, the throwing out the whole mm -hmm. law, uh, mm -hmm. a semblance of, of something different than that, California can still move forward. Mm -hmm. They would move forward in a different way mm -hmm. um, and addressing the issues of access in a different way, but they can still move forward right. um, on their own. Yeah, there's work being done now on reforming how Medi-Cal rates are, are paid out to hospitals. They're looking to go to a DRG system. 
um, that's different. So there's movement even without you know the federal reform law itself. There still has been and will be movement in looking at how those systems are played out in the state. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.